Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Sarah Calhoun. Sarah is the founder and owner of Red Ants Pants, a Montana-based apparel company that makes high-quality, American-made workwear for women. But Sarah's business ventures are just the tip of the iceberg. She also started the Red Ants Pants Music Festival, which attracts such world-class musicians as Dwight Yoakam and Lucinda Williams. The proceeds from the music festival fund Sarah's third venture, the Red Ants Pants Foundation, an organization dedicated to developing women's leadership, supporting local farms and ranches, and enriching communities. It's simply amazing that one person can do this much work. Sarah was raised on a farm in New England and spent her early career working as an instructor for Outward Bound. After reading Ivan Doig's This House of Sky, she packed up and moved to Montana, where she began to turn her idea for red ants pants into a reality. She learned to sew, taught herself business, and eventually moved to the small agricultural community of White Sulphur Springs, Montana, where red ants pants opened for business. As you'll hear, selling pants is just one small aspect of Sarah's larger vision. She's using her business to build community, empower women, and bring together people of differing perspectives and backgrounds. We had a very interesting conversation. You'll be blown away by Sarah's focus, vision, and the staggering amount she's been able to accomplish. She talks about growing up in New England and how her family helped to instill her relentless work ethic. She discusses her time teaching at Outward Bound and how many of the lessons learned have translated to business. We chat about how the Red Ants Pants business model flies in the face of traditional MBA business theories and how her lack of business experience was actually a great strength when she started the company. We also talk about how hard work in the outdoors builds self-confidence and her future plans for the foundation. As usual, we discussed impactful books, films, and the best advice she's ever received. This is a great episode, and I know you'll enjoy it. There's a lot here, so be sure to check out the episode notes for links to everything we discuss. Hope you enjoy. somebody for the first time and you've never never met them before and they ask you that question what do you do how do you answer that so what do I do I um <clears throat> I suppose I run a pants company certainly red ants pants workwear for women everything's made in the U.S. so we manage oversee production and marketing and sales and distribution and all that good stuff so that's one third of my work right now and then the other Big third is we run a, a music festival as well. So I produce that, everything from booking the talent to dealing with porta potty situations on site and all the logistics. So lots of details there. And then thirdly, the executive director for the Red Ants Pants Foundation, which is our nonprofit arm of the enterprise. And we uh, do some neat programs within there as well as um, <clears throat> give some money away. So That sounds more like a job for three people than one person. It should be most likely. Yes. <laughs> well, I guess uh, just to, to get right into it, I want to I want to hit on all that. But probably the, the most logical way to start is can you talk a little bit about Red Ants Pants and kind of what you guys do and, and how you came to be? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So my background was uh, in the outdoor industry, I instructed for Outward Bound after college and grew up on a farm in New England and then did a lot of trail crews with the Student Conservation Association. So I was needing work pants that fit. And at the time, there were only pants made for men on the market. 
this was back in the early 2000s. And <clears throat> so then I was, I was working around different places around the West and got the idea to, to either start a company or I tried to get other businesses that were already on the ground to start a line of women's work wear. And none of them really jumped at it. One guy said, if you're serious, why don't you do it yourself? And so I very naively said to myself at the age of 25, start a business. How hard could that be? <laughs> <laughs> Little did I know. Um, so initially I moved to Bozeman, Montana, not having visited the state prior and was reading a copy of small business for dummies. Cause at that point I did not know what a business plan was. And a guy noticed this book I was reading in a coffee shop. We got to chatting and it turns out for 20 years he had done production and design for a little company called Patagonia. Oh, that's lucky. Yeah. Very fateful day there. <laughs> and, uh, he took me to his shop a week later, gave me loads of contacts and advice and just said, Sarah, you're onto something big here. I think you need to move on this now. And uh, he continues to be on my board of advisors to this day, and he's still a top mentor. Um, so those first couple of years, I spent all my time and energy learning everything I could about the apparel industry, about the business world and marketing and web design and branding and all that good stuff, and got the product designed and off the ground, and everything's made in the U.S. by choice, and figured out the textile world and the manufacturing world and and then I moved up to a little town called White Sulphur Springs, where we opened our storefront in 2006. You make so. that all sound sound very easy, and that sounds that's about three careers worth of work piled into that that quick story. Um, <laughs> could could you so just to back up a little bit when you initially approached some of these outdoor apparel companies with this idea, and they passed on it. What were the mm -hmm. reason? What was the reason that they gave for that? Because you've obviously shown that it was a very, very <clears throat> good idea. What What were they missing there? What 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 did they? What were their excuses to you? You know, some of them didn't honestly even write back. Um, some of them, I think, they didn't really believe there was enough of a market. And it certainly is a niche market, but it's one that's growing tremendously, especially now. Um, so it's. I think that was just the, you know, or they didn't specialize in you know that sort of workwear they were more of an outdoor gear brand that sort of thing um and yeah. when you and you said that you moved to bozeman and, and you didn't really know anybody and i was actually just uh interviewed somebody a few days ago who who did a similar thing what was it about bozeman that attracted you and then next question beyond that is what brought you to white sulfur springs mm -hmm. so i drove through Missoula first actually my last trail crew was in the Cascades in Washington and <clears throat> and you hit Missoula first on I-90 and people had told me to to check that out and it didn't totally grab me the I don't think the landscape was quite what I was um imagining for Montana and then I got into Bozeman and it was I mean just stunning mountains and um really really beautiful spot a little bit smaller um and it just it just felt good and um, went for it there. And then after about a year there, though, it was a little bit too big for me and too much of a, a scene. And I was really trying to find a, a small ag town that was more similar to how I grew up in, in Connecticut on a farm there. So I was um, trying to find something a little more what I felt that was a little more authentic um, with kind of old school Montana. And I had recently read a book by Ivan Doig, one of the best writers of the American West, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. And he grew up in this little town, White Sulphur Springs, and his memoir, This House of Sky, came across my lap and I read it and thought I'd come check out this little town and it felt right. So I found an old saddle shop for sale and 
moved in. Wow. That's funny you mentioned that book because um, another guest I had on, on the podcast named Sarah King, who's a rancher down in Arizona, she mentioned oh. that as being one of her all-time favorite books. And she was actually nice enough to send me a copy and it's on my bedside table um, next to all these other books I'm trying to get through. And so that that encourages me to to knock it to the top of the list. What what was it about or what is it about Doig's writing that you that you find so um, powerful? I think he... Uh he tells the truth with in this memoir, especially, um, <clears throat> I mean, Mo- Montana is romanticized and holds a lot of cachet and for good reason, because it is stunning and gorgeous and all that, but it's also really harsh and windy and a lot of sagebrush and challenging living and livestock raising conditions and all that. And, uh, and I like that he tells the, the truth of that, not just the, not just the pretty idealistic side. Um, and that's, you know, in, in this house of sky, he describes this area so beautifully and the people within so honestly. Um, and he's such an incredible writer, just his use of words. Um, and then on all of his novels are just, <clears throat> just incredible stories. Um, I really, really love him. Yeah. I've, uh, Sarah actually sent several books and my wife read one of his, uh, it was a fiction book and the name is slipping by me right now, but she, she loved it. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm excited to dig into that. Um, yeah. so when you arrived in white, white silver Springs, what, what was the, how, how were you, um, how were you welcomed by the town? I mean, were they, were you seen as were they kind of wondering who is this outsider coming in or were, is it uh, enough of a tight knit community that they, that they, you were welcomed in or somewhere there in the middle? Yeah, I think there was, there was certainly a lot of curiosity at first. Um, it's pretty unusual for a 25 year old single woman to come into town by a building on main street and start a business, you know, that just doesn't happen <laughs> very yeah. often. Um, and I, so people were stopping by all the time just to visit and figure out who I, who I was and what was, what I was about and all that good stuff. And, um, and really I just, I just started getting involved with the community pretty quickly cause I didn't know anybody and, and it's a lonely place in the world sometimes when you don't have a community yet, you know, so I volunteered as an EMT on the ambulance and coach volleyball and worked at the, you know, volunteered at the chamber and the arts council and helped out at different brandings and moving cows and that sort of thing and just got, got to know the community. And I think they got to know me and learned to trust me in that regard. Cause it's, these are tough little towns to move into when you're from the East coast and you know, that's a, it's a different culture in a, in a lot of ways, this, these cowboy towns, um, in a wonderful way. And, um, and they have been hugely supportive and welcoming, um, ever since the beginning. So I think there was certainly a, a period to make sure <laughs> they were still questioning a bit, but you know, you just keep plugging along and working alongside them and they figure you out. Yeah. I, I know that deal, not as well as you, but when I, I'm from North Carolina, that's where this accent's from. And I used mm-hmm. to do a lot of work in Montana and no joke on two separate occasions, completely unrelated. I started talking to um, ranchers and they looked, start, they just kind of looked at me funny and then interrupted me and said, are you from Scotland? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and so I guess I said, well, somebody was like 400 years ago, but, but, I'm yeah. not, but there, there must be a little bit of that in my accent, but yeah, it's, it, that's, funny. um, that's very, uh, I think that's very impressive and brave on so many levels just to, to roll into a town like that and start and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, establish yourself. Has community always been a big part of your life or have you always understood the importance of, of community? Did you grow up in a tight knit community? Yeah, I sure did. Um, I grew up in a town of about 1,200, and my family, 
my dad's side of the family had been there since the early 1700s. And, you know, there's the Calhoun Library and the Calhoun Cemetery. And it's a, there, my grandparents were pillars of the community and of the church and they were dairy farmers and just um, grew up with, with that tight knit sense of community but and then we had a um, tornado in 89 that hit our farm and the whole town just pitched in so much to help all of us out that had our places just devastated so it's the kind of thing you see on the ground and you still see it in I think every small town today of you just help out your neighbors because you depend on each other you know it's very important I grew up in a similar type of situation in North Carolina and um, when I got away from it for a while I realized how special it was and now I'm I'm extremely um I don't know if I, I understand the importance of community and it's, mm-hmm. it's something that's missing. It seems like from a lot of um, the society these days, um, yep. when you were a kid, were there, was there any indication looking back that you would have pursued a, a life like this, a life around the outdoors? I know you, you grew up on a, on a farm or spent a lot of time on a farm. Um, when you were a kid, did you look forward and think you would end up living in rural Montana? Um, I, I knew I was going to be doing something different. Um, that wasn't necessarily a career you see at a job fair. Um, and I remember writing about that in my high school graduation speech, but, um, or no, it was my college application essay. That's what it was that I didn't, I knew it was going to be something that I created on my own. Um, I would have guessed that it would have been around livestock, at least in a community where there's a lot of livestock, you know, the whole pace of these kind of towns rolls with the, the ranching industry. Um, I could, I could see that. I could have predicted that part certainly. And small town. Yes. I'm not sure I would have seen that I would have moved out West. Um, although it doesn't really surprise me. So you were an outward bound instructor for, was it five years? Is that right? Mm-hmm. And uh, yep. did you do outward bound programs during high school or college? No, I sure didn't. I jumped right in on the, on the, excuse me, on the instructor level in uh, at Gettysburg College. I I was the facilitator for the um, Gettysburg Recreational Adventure Board, which was a very in-depth program, um, kind of kind of like your college outdoor club. But but we, you know, I got my WEMT, and we would facilitate both hard skills and soft skills and leadership stuff for for college students and in all sorts of, uh, you know, backpacking, climbing, caving, and sea kayaking and challenge course. So I got, there was a really in-depth program there that got me started in that world. Um, so, but I had never been a crew member on a trail crew or a student on Outward Bound or any of those good programs. Um, so I kind of came in at the facilitator level. So when you started um, instructing at Outward Bound, where, where were you located? That was out of the Baltimore Chesapeake Bay base. Okay. So we programmed a lot in West Virginia, Western Maryland, and on the bay. Got it. Well, I I did Knowles, but my wife has done three outward bounds, and actually one of my best Knowles instructors was was really a career outward bound instructor, and he ended up just coming over to Knowles for my section. It's a guy named Brady Robinson. I don't know if you if you know him, hmm. um, but he's Thank now you. the the executive director of the Access Fund, but. That experience was just so formative to me and taught me so much about leadership and, you know, expedition behavior and being a good teammate. Looking back mm-hmm. at that time, um, do, did you do a lot of the lessons that you learned and taught the students? Do those apply to how you run your business now? Oh, 100%. Yes. It's, uh, 
it's it's almost uncanny about how much you learn. I mean, even just rock climbing. And I was not a good climber. I'm not built for it by any means. But, you know, you're stuck in one damn position. You can't get anywhere and you're about to give everything up. And, and then you just shift your body or your mind, mental focus even an inch one side or the other. And all of a sudden it's a whole new landscape of opportunities to, to go a little further, you know, it's, and just those, those lessons that are so internal when you're at that age and, um, learning them for the first time, you know, they're, um, I don't, I don't know that I could be as nimble as I have had to be in the business world without those kind of experiences. Yeah. They're, they're so real, you know, it's just such a, uh, it's a, it's a black and white kind of thing when you're out there. A lot of the, the nonsense is stripped away. And I think about Knowles on a daily basis on the, and the lessons mm-hmm. I learned. Um, and I think my wife does the same for, for outward bound. Um, mm-hmm. so when you finished, what, what made you decide that, um, you wanted to move on from outward bound? So the seasonal lifestyle is, um, <clears throat> fantastic, but there's also, you know, you can't have a pet or a garden or a boyfriend for long or, you know, like all the, you're just you're picking up and moving every season and, yep. um, which was great, but I was, I was ready to put down some roots and, um, and dig into something a little bit more. Um, I, my back was also hurting from, from trail work at that time. So I was ready to, to quit doing the full manual labor every day. Um, yeah, so I, I, and this whole problem with the pants, the pants situation was, was really bugging me. So it seemed time to try something and, and, uh, find my place on the planet and dig in. And so I read that you, um, or, or maybe saw in a video that you, when you got to Bozeman after a while, you started working at a outdoor, um, gear company, maybe a backpack company, learning how to sew and learning about fabrics. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. And sure was, did. was that all, were you doing that with the end goal of starting your own company or was it, was that still kind of, uh, coming mm-hmm. together in your head? Nope. That was, uh, so I moved, let's see, it was late August when I got there and then met the Patagonia mentor, Richard, right out of the gate. And that was one of his great tidbits of advice was to get a job sewing so I could learn the production floor. Um, so I, that year in Bozeman, I spent, um, sewing backpacks and then I I got a job peeling logs, um, by the foot you got paid. So it was, it was a flexible, you know, gig you could go peel for as long as you wanted, which was awesome. And then that winter grooming Nordic ski trails in the snowcat. So, I had part-time work just piecing stuff together um, and then just spent every waking hour learning as much as I possibly could about the apparel industry and textiles and um, pattern work and how to get these pants off the ground. So while you were doing this, because, you know, the the apparel business is extremely um, challenging, even if mm-hmm. if you're just making cheap stuff and, and you're doing it, you know, you're making very high quality stuff, you're having it manufactured in the u.s and that's just really a small you know the the selling the pants seems to be kind of a a small part of just a larger um a larger goal that you're working on with uh you know empowering women and building community and so it's when when you were telling people this idea did did people ever say you're crazy this is this is the you know this isn't going to work that's that's too challenging as you know these companies are going out of business all the time or were were people fairly supportive or both? Um, I would say overall fairly supportive. Um, certainly you have your 
your immediate circle of friends and family who are all going to say that you have a good idea. Um, <clears throat> but then the more and more people in the, uh, you know, what, what was nice having worked seasonally for different companies, um, was that I had a pretty good network of other women that I knew were having the same challenge of finding good pants that fit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew, I knew the market was out there and was proven in my mind anyway. Um, <clears throat> you know, and certainly there's, there was some cautionary, um, comments along the way, but, but overall it was just do your homework and, um, make smart decisions and get some financing and roll. Well, it sounds like you have a extremely, um, diligent work ethic. And then it's in, in a lot of the, like for your foundation, I know that one of the things you guys are, are doing is, is encouraging, um, you know, hard helping people to build, really good work ethics. Where did that work ethic come from? Have you had it your entire life? And if so, was that a result of your parents or grandparents or friends or just genetics? Mm-hmm. Yep. Definitely parents and grandparents and seeing, seeing that and having both my parents and grandparents be farmers, being able to see them at work all the time. And that's certainly a lot of, um, small business, you know, being farmers and my mom was incredible at marketing and watching, um, so both the, the intellectual hard work and the physical hard work, um, and really trying to build, build their farm up and there's, there's so much to it. So I, I think some of it was certainly genetic, but also it's a learned and practice behavior that, um, has to be encouraged when you're, when you're a kid to get all your chores done. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, but my dad always, my dad always says, if you're going to do a job, you might as well do it right, Sarah. <laughs> That's so, good advice. <laughs> it is. It sure is. Um, so the company started 2006, and then not soon after, everything fell apart in the economy. Was that a mm-hmm. did that was that a huge negative impact or a scary time for your company, or or was it? Uh, were you guys able to? You're obviously <clears throat> able to weather the storm, but but what was that like? That was scary. I remember uh, I was. The weekend the stock market went down, I was doing a show in Bozeman. Um, I think it was a Bioneers conference, and I had done it the year before and had done really well in sales. And then this year just tanked. And uh, I remember thinking a lot about just tossing it all in and stocking up on seed potatoes and a team of oxen and a lot of ammo and seeing what would happen, you know. <laughs> but it, it didn't have to go to those extremes, luckily. Uh, but we just we just kept plugging along, and you know, it's it's a it's a very small business still to this day. It's um, so like little little effects like that certainly do they do have a big effect, but they um, but we can roll with the punches a little bit better, I think, because we're a little smaller and more nimble. Um, but yeah, it's, it was a tough a tough go and we just kept plugging along and, and, uh, made it through. Were there any lessons that come to mind just as a leader, you know, leading this business and leading your team that, you know, now that you made it through and you got some scars to show for it, I'm sure. But how are you better as a leader now than you were, uh, before you had those, had to deal with the challenges of the financial crisis? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I think, um, the and I just was you know I'm I've been rereading my journals and I was just writing it the other day about um, that I need to watch my leadership style and my attitude and my words and all of that because our entire team reflects um, 
reflects that in a lot of ways, right? So if, if I'm full of despair, they're, they are going to be too in a lot of ways. So it's, yep. um, but it's a fine line of being realistic and, um, you know, planning and reacting appropriately to given situations and sales or lack of sales or whatever's going on. Um, you know, it's, there's a, there's a balance point there for, um, how much truth to be told, I suppose, uh, the whole way along. And, and obviously we're, we're an open book with our, all of our numbers and our sales with our staff, but, um, but it's, you know, there's times when I, I do feel hopeless on a situation or stuck and need, need help from others or whatnot. So it's always, you know, it's, and they say it's lonely at the top as, as a boss or a CEO, but it's, which is very true. There's challenges there too, but, um, yeah, it's a, so I don't know, I, I think I'm still learning on the leadership piece. Um, I think recognizing in our business what's not working and try something new is, is a big one where um, we're always faced with and trying to remind ourselves to um, keep changing our perspective just a touch and see what else we can try to make it work. You you mentioned uh, your journal. Um, is that something you do daily or, or fairly regularly? Mm-hmm. Yep, it sure is. It's kind of how I process my um, thoughts and, and also a place to channel all the, the vision and ideas and excitement for next projects, which seems to be, um, a curse of the entrepreneur. I'm finding. <laughs> yeah. I've always found that thinking is just, I mean, uh, writing is just kind of a way of organized thinking. It, at least it is for me. Mm-hmm. It forces me to get all these crazy ideas and kind of pin them down a little bit. Um, do you, do you do that mm-hmm. in the morning, the evening? I mean, do, do you, like when you wake up in the morning, do you have a specific routine you follow to get ready for the day? Mm-hmm. I sure do. I I try to get up relatively early and have a cup of coffee by the wood stove with my dog mm-hmm. and try to set some sort of intentional, even if it's reading a garden magazine or something that'll get me excited about, you know, thinking creatively or, um, I, I, don't even own a TV, so I, I read a lot of books too. But um, just get into the day. I usually listen to NPR and then try to do some yoga and get ready for the work day. But certainly have some time to myself before I even look at email or anything um, to try to get centered. And then, then in the evening, I, I tend to do a lot of journaling too um, when I can have whiskey. <laughs> that also. <laughs> Let it flow a little bit better. <laughs> exactly. That's I do hit my creative stride when I'm doing any writing or, or heavy thinking. I like to, you know, gets the juices flowing. Yeah. Well, there's a long line of very accomplished people who've done the same thing. So you're you're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> accomplished alcoholics. <it's> <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that's hilarious. When you. So when you look back at what you know now, so you've been going going twelve years, and you know when you started this thing in '06, you had you had done your homework and you had put in the time to learn textiles, you learned you know enough about the business to get it going. But when you look back at that person who started it, is there something that what what were you lacking that that is almost like is there anything that's almost like comical now when you look back, you're like wow. I was 25 years old. I thought I knew everything, but I sure as hell didn't know X. Is there something from, mm-hmm. from all the experience that you've gained? <laughs> yeah. Um, it is funny because now I'm in a position where I'm looking at starting new projects and I'm terrified compared to how naive I was back then. <laughs> um, but uh, but I think 
I mean, really, I do not have a lot of strengths in the um, the financial side of the business as far as, um, like, we didn't actually have, we had records of sales, but we didn't have actual bookkeeping the first couple years of the company. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, it was, you know, we'd file our taxes, we would do everything and had it, like, handwritten, but, it, I mean, just not, and I had taken QuickBooks courses like crazy and... Um, but just couldn't get my shit together on that on that front um, for a couple of years into the business. It's it's horrifyingly embarrassing. But um, but you know they you know they say hire you know hire your weakness, which is great. But until you can pay for your people <laughs> yeah. to get hired, you're going to wear all the hats and you're not going to wear them all well. You know. Um, so that's so looking back, the fact that we even made it out of the gate, it still it still kind of shocks me sometimes. Um, but here we are. I, I saw in some of the articles that I read about you and some of the videos, one of the themes that kept coming up was um, stepping outside of your comfort zone. And I think that applies in, to your business, but then also it's what you're teaching in some of your workshops. Um, you, for you personally, how do you, is, is there anything you do to kind of push yourself or ensure that you're not getting too comfortable and that you're always pushing that comfort zone? Um, cause I, my, that Knowles instructor I mentioned, who was actually outward bound instructor, one of the best lessons that he gave, gave us. And I was 21 years old when he did, but I think about it all the time is this idea of expanding your comfort zone. And so I imagine in outward bound, you guys talked a lot about that. And what do you do to, to keep that expanding? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And I, um, I would say I do it a lot professionally, but I don't do it personally anymore. Really? Um, which is interesting. But, but I, you know, my life is so tied up personally with my, like my business is my identity. So it's, to me, like I, I take enough risks on the professional side. And I mean, I certainly, like I just spoke at South by Southwest on a panel that had to do with the tech sector, which is completely out of my comfort zone. And, um, you know, anytime I have to talk, um, about issues that are either political of nature or, uh, you know, things that are, that I need to get like my awesome staff to give me talking points on (laughs) that aren't just like telling my story, you know, that's all scary and different, but, um, and obviously start learning new things like how to, how to book music for a music festival and how to get to know, you know, the Nashville scene. Like there's a lot there that I certainly am continually pushing myself out of my comfort zone professionally, but personally I have, like if I, if, and when I take time off, I just want to be relaxing and not <laughs> like doing some grand physical challenge, which is, which is also funny given my background, but, um, like I want to do a flat water river trip with, <laughs> with cocktails instead of <laughs> raging rapids ever. And like, I, I just, I feel like I have enough stress in my business life that when I'm with my personal challenges. I just want to chill the, the heck out. So. <laughs> I think that makes perfect sense. I, I don't think yeah. you need to defend that. I, I, I am 100% supportive of that with everything you've got going on. Um, so speaking of uh, Nashville and the music scene, did you guys, you guys just announced the lineup for the music festival. Is that right? So we've got Dwight Yoakam as our headliner this year, which is going to be a big one. That is a big one. That's be, how did you land that? So we had our eye on him for years, obviously because he's such a legend. And this year it lucked out that he was routing through Salt Lake, so we we got him while he's out on the West Coast, and that's always a big deal with um, timing and budget and all that. If they're in the area, it's much more doable. So it's good timing this year. 
So can you talk a little bit about the music festival, how it came to be and kind of what it's done there for the community in White Sulphur Springs? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we got started in 2011 and this was certainly some marketing moves for the pants company because we named it the Red Ants Pants Music Festival. Um, but we started a separate entity, the Red Ants Pants Foundation. So it is a, it's one of our big programs for our nonprofit as well as um, our main fundraiser for our entire foundation. And this was really with an idea of trying to bring people together on a larger scale. And um, we had for years been doing a marketing move for, on the pants company side called uh, something we called Tour to Pants, where we would take an old Airstream trailer and go around the country doing house parties, yep. um, which was really, really fun to get to know our customers face to face and hear their stories. And, and really, there was a part of me that just wanted to bring all of these people together in one place and just see what happens. Um, and we're really using music as a tool to do that. And it's an incredible, incredible result. Um, it's been it's been really awesome to see. It's certainly a hugely risky move. Had a $0 budget literally that first year. Um, just hoping that we had sold enough advanced tickets to pay the talent. And amazingly, it worked. Um, very, very well supported by the community. Everything from the, the school groups earn money picking rocks and filling gopher holes in the football team picks up trash every year and the local law enforcement and EMS and fire and city and county crews watering the roads and it, it just across the board ranchers, the, the Jacksons, uh, they lend their ranch every year for free, um, which is just amazingly generous where we hold the, the event. It's on a working cattle ranch just outside of town. And uh, we have at this point about 85 staff and 220 volunteers to pull it all off. So that um, is been, that is a huge operation, and you, mm-hmm. you you didn't have any background in event promotion or anything no. like that before you did. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and this is literally where you have to build everything from the ground up. It's like a field of dreams, you know. And it was it's uh, <laughs> once the gophers leave, fill the gopher holes, pick the rocks, and then bring in everything from the stage to the porta potties to the generators to the showers, the water trucks, the dust abatement trucks, like everything you can imagine. Then we fill it all with food and craft vendors and bring in all these musicians. We have two different stages and, um, as well as like big kids tent and a demonstration area where we, uh, we teach different traditional agricultural and work skills, which is really a fun component. So whether that's ranch roping or, or sheep shearing or cross cut saw competitions or trailer backing or any of those good skills, we, we like to add that all in. So that's, that happens between the main stage acts, and then we have a huge beer and wine tent, and and then a campground that is enormous, right adjacent to the festival ground. So a little city rises out there, and that uh, that first year we had six thousand people attend, which was I think that tripled the county's population back in two thousand eleven. Six thousand people. How did you? I mean, how did you even begin to market that? Because two thousand eleven. Yeah, it's not that long ago, but as far as technology, it it kind of Mm -hmm. is a long time ago. Like nowadays, Mm -hmm. it it would be relatively easy to reach a lot of people really quick thanks to social media, but that was still early in social media. How did you do that? It sure was. Um, I I hired a gal that had some ties in the music industry that um, worked really well with getting getting good press. Um, And fortunately, it tied in well with the momentum we already had with the pants company and being in White Sulphur and um, we lucked out and got an amazing lineup that first year with Lyle Lovett, Jerry Jeff Walker, Guy Clark, Rodney Crowell. It was, it was fantastic. And, and I was advised, um, by friends and family and board of advisors and whatnot that first year to like, 
like, take it slow, start small. But I just, my gut was telling me in a town that's 100 miles from anywhere, we had to start with a splash and and put a little risk on the line here. And so we sure did, and the press ate it up, and people loved the lineup and decided to come. And um, we literally bought out the toilet paper across three counties that first year. <laughs> so there were a lot of, we were scrambling on the backside. But on the front end, people thought it was run beautifully and they've been coming back ever since and last year we had close to 17,000 people come 17,000 and so where are they coming from I mean all all over all over the United States now all over the U.S. The Canada we've got a lot of folks that fly in from Europe even it's it's uh it's crazy mostly I would say predominantly Montanans but people road trip in from all corners of the U.S. and it's it's really fun to see pretty diverse crowd I want to I want to come just for the trailer backing instruction. I need help with that. Yes, <laughs> and, a, and a woman teaches that. She's awesome. She grew up in Eastern Montana, and her dad would not let her drive the horse trailer until she could back in parallel park it. A horse trailer. Parallel park. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yep. PhD that's... level uh, trailer backing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fun. Um, all right, so. I, I could I could ask questions for like three hours about each one of these subjects, but I, I want to be respectful of your time, so I'm going to keep moving, keep moving. Um, <laughs> the so the foundation the the tickets from the sale the, the proceeds from the sale uh, I mean from the sale of the tickets to the music festival goes to fund the foundation. Can you talk a little bit about the foundation? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So our mission we're in support of women's leadership, working family farms and ranches, and rural communities. So all the things that we. We love and hold near and dear. Um, and so with with these proceeds, uh, at the end of this spring, we will have gifted over $100,000 to other farms or <clears throat> organizations across Montana that have projects that parallel our mission with that. Um, and that's been really fun just to throw a party and be able to give some money away that really helps a lot of people get some projects off the ground. Um, and then our other... Our other program is what we call Timber Skills, and that's a four-day training for women in Carpentry 101 or in Chainsaw 101. So we have three different female instructors on both sides, and it's that's in September here in White Sulphur, which is really fun. And I think you actually know one of our instructors, Katie. I do. That's how we got connected. Um, and yeah. she was she was just yeah. raving about the experience. Um, yeah. What What do you think it is about these timber skills that – is so empowering to people because I'm on the board here in Colorado of the Colorado Youth Corps Association and they oversee oh, no different. Way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on the board. And, um, and so we, we kind of oversee all the different youth corps around Colorado and I was never a member of the youth corps, but I see all these success stories from these, you know, high school, college age, and even some older veterans who do this and they're out there, you know, downing timber and, and just working, working their asses off. But it's a huge life, um, a life changing event, a formative event, and it, it can it builds up confidence. Um, it you know makes them self sufficient. It builds these tight communities. I mean, it's almost like these people are, are siblings after they go through a summer working together on one of these mm-hmm. crews. So wh- why do you think that is? Because I've never I never did it, so I just don't know. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's similar to the Outward Bound or Knowles experience where you strip everything else away and. When you're working and living together, especially out in the backcountry and working your butt off every day, it just um, it forces you to get close and get intimate in a hurry, you know. Um, and and again, these skills when you're learning and practicing them, there's it's so empowering to learn how to to drop a tree with a crosscut saw and then 
build a bridge out of it or whatever the work project may be. It's, um, you know, the self-reliance piece and the, certainly the work ethic piece, but also the, oh yeah, this is a scary tool, but I'm going to learn how to do it. And now look what I can accomplish. And that's the same kind of pattern we see a lot with our timber skills courses, especially for women running chainsaws or, or that sort of thing, or a, a chop saw or um, any of this equipment. It's, it's intimidating at first. And then, and you think there's no way I could do it, but then you have really awesome instructors making it a safe environment in which to learn these skills. And then once they do realize they can do it, it's just the sky is the limit. Have you read the book called Tribe by Sebastian Younger? No, I, I will, have not. I'm going to send it to you. Sebastian Younger should send me a check because I send this book to everybody. And people who <laughs> listen to this podcast are probably tired of it. But it's it's about it's basically about the importance of purpose and community. And he from from as a species. That's what we need. And he, he talks a lot about um, soldiers going off to war. When they come back, they have such a hard time readjusting. And it's because when they're in war, even in these terrible situations, they have such a tight-knit community of their other soldiers, and they have a, a purpose. And I've found that that, think, that line of thinking works for Knowles. It works for Alabama. It works for what you're doing. These youth corps are doing. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's very, very interesting and it's only about 150 pages. So uh, you'll, you'll love it. I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to send oh, it to neat. you because it's, it's oh, exactly cool. what you're teaching. And it, it, it makes, for me, it was so eye opening and it, it really reinforced my, um, understanding of the importance of community since reading that. Mm-hmm. So you'll, mm-hmm. I think you'll love it. Um, so thinking oh, about these, and go ahead. Just jumping off that yeah. real quick, we we also see that really strongly with our with our festival staff and people that are volunteering their time and effort and come to work their butts off in a hot, dusty cow pasture for a week straight. And it's become it really has become the festival family we call it. And it's um, I th- I think I'm just seeing that people are really craving being part of something worthwhile and being part of something bigger than themselves and. Um, and there's not a lot of opportunity to do that as an adult in the way our society typically works. So it's, that's been really neat to, to witness as well. Yeah, it, it really is. And I, after reading that book, I, I think about all this, the, 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 you know, the importance of community, the importance of working, just working your ass off in really hard, uncomfortable yep. conditions <laughs> and, and mm-hmm. just how, you know, we're built for it just as, mm-hmm. as animals, we're, we're built for that. We're built to work with other, with other humans towards a, a common goal. And so, um, that's when I was, you know, researching everything you've done that kept coming to mind. So I'm excited. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be excited to hear what you think of that book. Cool. Thank um, you. so thinking about these timber workshops, I'm sure there, are, you know, so many success stories, but when you think back on some of the people who've come and, and participated, are there any specific individuals or stories that come to mind? It's like, yeah, th- this is what it was all about. This is why I'm so glad I started this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a couple. Um, one quick one. We had a woman this summer who was 68 years old and learned how to run a chainsaw for the first time this summer. And she said it was the best day of her life. That was pretty exceptional. Um, but then another gal who she, let's see, she took our chainsaw course several years ago. One of the first ones we did. Um, she applied for a grant then with the Red Ants Pants Grants Program got awarded $1,000 to buy a planer to start her own woodworking business, which she had had some background in carpentry and wanted to get into it. And just, just in $1,000 is not a lot of startup cash, but it, it just the fact that someone else believed in her starting this business, it gave her the courage to go for it. And so now she's full-time 
carpenter contractor has this woodworking business on the side and now she comes back and she's our carpentry 101 instructor which is really wow. neat to see that full circle yeah that's really that's really neat and so how many of these courses do you have per season right now we just have the carpentry and the chainsaw we just do one in the fall but we're getting we're getting a lot more interest in demand and we have waiting lists and we're we're looking to expand and offer multiple courses as well as expand into welding and maybe masonry and really set up some sort of a almost a mini trade school workshop area because we, we need to have some sort of infrastructure um, to really get going. But we just last week we got an email from some adventure company in New York City that wants to bring 15 women out to, to, to take it and they're asking if we, we did custom courses and it was like, all right, here we go. Let's see, let's see what we come up with now. So um, yeah, so I think there's a lot of potential for growth there in that in that regard. You might want to invest some of the foundation's money in research and human cloning so you can clone yourself because pretty soon you're going to run out of time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know it's it is a tricky situation. I've, that's one of the big challenges on my plate right now: how to prioritize and time management <laughs> and delegate. <laughs> do you sleep a lot? I do actually go to sleep pretty well. I do. S- I get a good night's sleep, although often I will be awake from like two to four thinking about the, you know, the challenges of whatever work situation is on my plate. Man, that is, uh, that is really, that is really intense. I love, I love hearing these stories. I'd love to think that I could do it, but I just, I don't know that I'm wired for it. You know, I think it's, I think (laughs) it's, I love learning about it, but it's, um, man, it's, it's so impressive to me. So back to the foundation real quick. Um, do you see, when you think about where the foundation will be five years from now, how do you see it expanding, if at all? Mm-hmm. So this fall, we're actually launching a new pilot program for young women's leadership. Uh, and it's going to be comprised of a year-long leadership training for junior year high school girls across the state of Montana, specifically girls in really rural areas. So it'll be a very intimate um, eight to ten girls a year that get accepted into this program all expenses paid. And then we're going to just do a deep dive into all the leadership training with a really intentional goal of developing a strong alumni network for them. And hopefully they'll come back and help facilitate future classes and then really kind of build a good old girls club, which doesn't really exist like it does for men in this world right now. So um, that's exciting just to, to build on the, the hope for our youth and the pride in our rural communities and the courage and strength in our leadership. That sounds great. So do you have any, any heroes? Um, they could be either people you knew or people that you never knew and you just read about, um, just where do you get your inspiration, um, to, to come, you know, on the most basic level to come up with all these new ideas and and execute them, but then just, Mm -hmm. um, knowing that, that stuff like this can be done and you can, you can go out and and do something on your own that's never been done before. Is there anybody, either historical figures or, or family members that, that, you consider a real inspiration or a hero? Mm-hmm. Certainly. Well, both my parents, but my, my grandmother on my dad's side, the dairy farmers, she was a, she was a go-getter way before her time. And I think started the girls basketball team in the forties, which was unheard of back then, that, that sort of thing. And I, um, followed her footsteps in high school and started the volleyball team in my high school. And then, um, I, I think I, somewhere along the line, certainly picked up that, that anything is possible if you work hard enough and get creative enough and get persuasive enough with the people in your circles. That's what, um, I think is a big part of, you know, persuading people to follow your crazy ideas or think that it's actually a good idea to have a, 
a music festival in a cow pasture that, you know, it's, it's, it's a, um, and that's part of leadership certainly, I'm sure. But, um, yeah, I, I think just going for it. There's, I've had some really good teachers like, over the years as well. Um, or do you have any business mentors? Um, because when I, when I hear what you're doing, a lot of it reminds me of, of some of the, you know, Yvonne, Yvonne Chouinard, who's using his mm-hmm. business for a, a much bigger, um, a, a bigger mission than just, mm-hmm. you know, making more, making profits. So are there mm-hmm. any, are there any business leaders that you look, that you've looked up to over the years? You know, honestly, I haven't, I've been, because I never studied business or really paid much attention to it. I wouldn't, wouldn't say so much in that realm, but I, um, one of my, one of the really influential people in my life was, a um, he was the head of the center for public service at, at my college. And he talked a lot about building bridges between communities and different types of people. And that's something that has, um, really struck a chord throughout all of my work and our mission and, and, you know, everything we're trying to do at the festival. It's not, it's not about the music. We're using that to get people together and figure out how to, find commonalities with their neighbor that they otherwise wouldn't, you know, that, that classic story is, and we see it happening all the time. Um, and that building of bridges is, and finding that common ground is, is what I'm finding throughout all of these projects is really the kind of the secret mission of all of it, the human connection. That very well may, may be one of your, your secret weapons is that you didn't have your brain polluted with all that stuff because mm-hmm. I've, I've got an MBA and, you know, I love Yvonne Chouinard and every single thing he says is the exact opposite of what they taught me for two years in business mm-hmm. school. <laughs> so yep, I think there's, I there's a lot to be said for coming at it with a fresh perspective um, versus, you know, the, all these preconceived notions that, that somebody tells you, well, this is how it is. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I used to say that I, uh, it's easy to think outside of the box because I don't even know what the box is <laughs> having not studied business, you know, um, that's the so. common theme, you know, with, with so many entrepreneurs, that's the common theme. Um, I think mm-hmm. they just, they don't even know what the, what the rules are. Um, they they don't know what the limiting, the limiting factors may be or what people say the limiting factors are. Um, yeah, absolutely. So and well, there's so many ways to get creative and have fun with it that really just, that's what makes a difference to our customers and our community. And, and that's, it's fun doing it, you know? Yeah, it seems like it. You know, it, I think it, the business aspect seems fun, but then when you throw in the whole community building aspect, that's just uh, a level of rewarding that I think is would be it would be hard to quantify in any way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I've got a few quick questions that I've run through with pretty much everybody I've had on the podcast, and it's been it's really interesting to kind of compare and contrast answers, and also see where a lot of the same answers um, continue to come up. Like, for example, the, mm-hmm. the Ivan Doig references um mm-hmm. so do you have any favorite books related to the west i guess yes you know ivan doig is is the, at the top of the list any other ones yes absolutely um do you know blind your ponies no i don't oh no this might be my favorite really um stanley gordon west is the author okay and it takes place it's a novel and it takes place in um willow creek montana and it's about a a small town basketball team, but it's really about the small town and the characters. And it's, um, hands down one of my favorite books of all time. Nice. I'm glad um, I asked. Yeah. And we can sure send you a copy. We sell it here in the shop. Oh, cool. Um, and Oh, all the classics, the Ed Abbey's and the Wallace Stegner's and 
and all those. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Hemingway, even though he doesn't write too much of the West. Um, but yeah, Ivan Doig has really been pretty um, transformational in my life. And I was, I was lucky, very lucky to receive a, a letter from him um, after having, he had heard about his influence of my moving to White Sulphur. And he really? told me he was, he was so glad I had found his hometown and I'm making it perk. Wow. Which was a lovely thing to hear from him. And then I got a chance to meet him after our long foray in letter writing. And he was just as lovely as you can imagine. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a really cool story. Yeah. Um, do you have any books, any favorite books? They don't have to do with the West, but just in general, is there, are there any other books that, that stand out as being all time favorites? Mm, Prodigal Summer, Barbara Kingsolver. Mm-hmm. Top of my list as well. All of her stuff is exceptional. Um, I read her book called Animal Vegetable Miracle. Have you read that? Mm-hmm. I got halfway through it. Yes. I thought that I was got, pretty good. That's the only thing I've ever was, read by her. Yeah. Oh yeah. Check, check out Prodigal Summer. That's a, that's a neat one. Um, yeah, Hemingway's up there too. There, I just yeah, I'm trying to think. I haven't read. Um, I haven't honestly have much time to read lately, which is upsetting. Yeah, <laughs> got to change that. <laughs> That's a good move. Yeah. Not having a TV, we don't we don't have yeah. one either, and uh, that God, it, it frees up so much time. That's wasted. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any favorite documentaries or films that might be hard without the um, with your busy schedule carving out yeah, two hours, but any, any films that stick out? Um, recently I just saw, it's funny, those free movies on Delta these days. It's where I get caught up, <laughs> but I, uh, I just saw wind river. Oh, that's good. That? I, I just saw that oh, too. I, I don't watch many so movies, good. but I, I loved it. Yep. That was, that was exceptional. Um, that bad guy got it in the end too, which I really loved. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> And he did it to himself. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I just that. I mean, the statistics that there are no statistics of women on the reservations. It's just it's shocking. Um, yeah, that was that was a good one that struck me. Yeah, that was a great one. I watched that, and then about a week later, I was up in eastern Montana, um, threw some of the reservations up there, and it was fresh on my mind. That that was a, a action packed movie, but also a powerful movie that I keep thinking about. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Um, yeah. So. You're obviously going a hundred miles an hour with work, um, but are there any hobbies you have uh, when you are able to break away? Um, float, you know. You mentioned floating the river. Do you fish? Anything like that? Um, I do hunt big game from time to time. I haven't um, haven't done too much of that last this past year. But um, honestly, cutting firewood is where I spend some of my free time and going to rodeos and live music and trying to spend as much time gardening as possible but it's a horrible gardening and growing season up here so that often i start out strong and then get too busy <laughs> so, um and then travel i like try to get out of the country as much as possible but that also is um is a tricky thing to make time for so where do you where's your favorite spot if you had to pick one out of the country oh man um oh that's a tough one greece or panama panama is cool i've never been to greece but i've been to panama yeah Super cool. I lived in Costa Rica for a year, so I, we would, oh, we would nice. road, road trip around Panama some, and it's um, it's cool. It's enough. It's crazy enough that it, it feels like an adventure, but it's not 
too crazy. <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. Central America is good like that. <laughs> so with all the time you spent outdoors at Outward Bound and on these, these work crews and then just living in Montana, is there a single experience that sticks out in your head as being the most powerful outdoor experience you've had? And that could equal crazy or scary or just a memorable one. Is there, is there one experience that sticks out in your head as, as just kind of the, the peak experience in the outdoors? Mm. Well, it's a tough one. There's so many, you know, of the grand accomplishment, top of the mountain type stories. I think that one that does stick out talking about travel was I was, I worked for a couple months on a farm in Belize and my sister came down to, vil- to visit and she's not quite as outdoorsy. And we were in a, I was, you know, sp- just sleeping in a tent the whole time on a little tent platform right next to a big, it was in the jungle fully next to a big waterfall. And, um, and we had, <laughs> and there's a jaguar started circling the tent, oh, wow. which was not something that I knew how to deal with, you know, from Montana life in the woods. And, um, oh, it was just, it was probably the 10 most terrifying minutes of my life. And my, and my, our mother loves big cats. And we had just sent her a picture, a postcard of a, with a jaguar on the front. And <laughs> we were just going through all the scenarios of, and like writing on each other's hand, like Helen Keller, trying to communicate back and forth and um which would didn't work very successfully and just picturing all the ways in which I could try to save my sister because I I couldn't deal with having her come visit and then telling my mom that I let her got eat, get eaten by Jaguar but it circled and circled and and took off and didn't didn't get us we we lived through it so that was yeah. it that was a good one that's scary. I've never had any I've never had an experience like that even with bears. I've never um I don't know what I would do. Yeah. It's, it's true. It's humbling. Which yeah. Is, you realize where we, that we're a very yeah. weak species, uh, when that yeah. starts. <laughs> exactly. You're not always at the top of the food chain. Exactly. Good. Yeah. That's a good lesson in community, you know, I mean, cause yeah. that we're only good as communities when you're by yourself, we got no chance, none. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, so true. this is a hard one, but where is your favorite location in the American West? Hmm. I would probably have to say the crazy mountains, which are just south mm-hmm. of white sulfur here. They're, they're just big medicine down there. And every time I, and I haven't done enough backpacking trips lately, but that's my mountain range of choice just to get up high into, into the lakes and the mountain goats and chill out for a couple of days. So that's a, that's a pretty special range. That's one of the most beautiful mountain ranges to look at from a distance that I've seen. I think mm-hmm. it's uh, it's spectacular. Yeah, it sure is. It's steep. You get in there for sure. <laughs> yeah, I've never gone back up in. I've just driven by, and um, oh, it looks yeah. steep. I mean, it looks kind of te- Grand Teton steep. I mean, you gotta go straight mm-hmm. up. That's that's neat. Yep. I need to get that's on my list to get back in there. Um, what okay. is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Hmm. Best advice, I would probably say learn how to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, but there was a, there's a good business mentor who said, Sarah. <laughs> don't forget what they say on the airplane, like put your oxygen mask on first, you know? Um, and it's, you know, I think we've all had, you know, we've pushed ourselves to the limits where your body actually has to give out on some health scare or another to say, slow down. You're not, you're not slowing down enough or, um, so I think, I think taking care of yourself and learning how to say no, is is a really big one as well. That's great advice. And then the final question is, if you could make a request or offer some words of wisdom or some advice to the people who listen to this podcast, and it's just people who love the West, and it's the full range from ranchers to athletes to conservationists, artists, 
just anybody who who loves the West in one way or the other. They don't they don't necessarily live here. Um, mm-hmm. If you could offer some advice to them, what would that be? Oh, advice. I'd say my ask would be to get into rural towns as much as possible and spend your money and support them and consider moving there. And um, I think there's so much grand potential for what can happen in these small towns across the West and America. And there's so much so much history and historical buildings that need to be preserved and um, community halls that need to rise up again and, you know, bringing music and art and culture and community-centered events in these sorts of places is really going to be a key factor in making some positive headway for all of us. Very well said. And then I just remembered, I didn't ask the most obvious question that I need to ask. What is the the story of the name Red Ants Pants? Ah, well, that's an easy one. Good. (laughs) Um, So in an ant colony, it is the female ants that do all of the work. And the male ants simply breed and die. (laughs) <laughs> slobs <laughs> I know so and that's a true story right there well that's cool well how can people find out more about Red Ants Pants you the festival all that kind of stuff and I'll have links mm-hmm. to everything yeah redantspants.com redantspantsmusicfestival.com and then all of our foundation information for timber skills and leadership and all that good stuff is redantspantsfoundation.org and we have all the social media content on all those sites as well and um, and our storefront here in White Sulphur Springs. We love visitors, and so come visit. Well, thank you, first of all, for everything you're doing um, up there in Montana and the example you're setting. And then also thank you for taking the time to chat. I know you're extremely busy, but this was this was really fun. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate you covering it. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.